0: Brought to you by
1: Penguin. welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty, and today I'm going to be talking to a writer who has his first book, Pathogenesis, coming out soon. He's a reader in politics and global health in the Centre for Public Health and Policy at Queen Mary University of London, where he's also co-deputy director of the Centre for Public Health and Policy. And his research has explored, amongst many other things, the link between populist politics and vaccine hesitancy in Europe, the negative impact of the CIA drone strike. On polio eradication efforts in Pakistan, and as we read in the book, how an outbreak of yellow fever led to Scotland entering the union with England in 1707. So, pathogenesis is described as the story of how human exposure to viruses has changed the course of everything from our history to our biology. And as we'll see, the two are intertwined a lot of the time. Um, It's a really enthralling book. It taught me so much I didn't know already. I'm really glad to have a chance to talk to him about it today. Jonathan Kennedy, welcome to the Penguin Podcast.
0: Thank you, Izzy. It's great to be here.
1: I've just finished the book. It's crammed with so much. I regard it as history told through the lens of infectious disease. I think different people will pick up different bits from it. But there are so many surprises like the fact that we as humans give birth rather than lay eggs because of a virus. Um, And I have to say, before I read it, If you'd said to me, if I'd met you at a party or something and you'd said, this is what I do, I just always thought of viruses as evil and as plagues as evil and as bacteria. sort of understand that they're a good bacteria, but generally I would have just thought, they're bad. Do you find that that's what a lot of people think? Yeah, and it's probably what I thought until...
0: A couple of years ago when I started to read about this kind of thing in earnest. And yeah, there's so many interesting facts, as you point out, that when I was researching for the book, they just blew my mind. The phenomenon of a retrovirus is a really interesting one. So retroviruses reproduce by basically inserting some of their DNA into our genome. And sometimes when they manage to infect either sperm or egg cells, these these genes are passed on to subsequent generations. And so about 8% of the human genome comes from these virus infections. And a lot of it is just now junk DNA. It doesn't do very much. But as you said, there's a few cases where humans have acquired you know, really quite remarkable capabilities from these viral infections. So one is the capacity to give birth and basically the ability for the placenta to bind to the female body is acquired from a virus and other things as well. So for example, the way that we form memories seems to be very, very similar to the way that viruses infect cells. And so it seems to be the case that this is also the result of a viral infection that occurred hundreds of millions of years ago and there's there's all sorts of other things as well so another really really interesting paper that came out a couple of years ago Belgian scientists took the the feces the poo of 2000 people and looked at the bacteria in there and they found that about 90% of bacteria that they found were capable of producing neurotransmitters like serotonin or dopamine that are capable of influencing our moods and they found that people that were suffering from clinical depression were lacking in two particular bacteria that were capable of producing neurotransmitters. It suggests that basically the bacteria in our body, and there's more bacteria cells in our body than human cells. If we took them all together, they'd weigh between one and two kilos, so the same as the human brain. But these bacteria have evolved inside our body to have a kind of symbiotic relationship with our body. And it seems like they produce these neurotransmitters because it puts us in a good mood. It makes us more gregarious. It means that we're more likely to go and hang out with other people and give these microbes an opportunity to spread from one person to another. And I guess there's other interesting conclusions one can draw from this as well. The fact that in the future, perhaps, if we're depressed, the best treatment might not be Prozac or going to therapy, but actually having a poo transplant, which I find it really mind-blowing as a layperson reading science.
1: Did you discover a lot when you were researching the book that you didn't already know?
0: I've been teaching things like this for certainly the last six, seven years. And when I had to write a proposal that was about 10,000 words, You know, I felt like I knew everything I needed to know. It'd be pretty easy to pump out the book in a year. And with a lot of things, when you start looking at them in more detail, you realize how ignorant you are and how little you know. And so um, the book took certainly more than a year, um, which took a couple of years. And it was the process of just reading and discovering and reading and discovering that was really brilliant and a lot of fun, even if it was quite Quite a lonely, lonely way of having fun, I guess.
1: And then presumably one thing informs another anyway. So it's not like you could go, okay, I'll just research medieval plagues and then do that chapter. Because you refer to different periods of time throughout it, even though the book is divided I suppose into not necessarily temporal chapters but certainly it feels like there's a solid structure to it but you do jump around you do refer back which is great because it enhances any information that's being given but it must have been not necessarily painstaking at times but you've got to you've got to have your your kind of head screwed on the whole time you can't just zone out and go write 200 words on the black death you know (laughs) I mean, I started
0: off with a very clear chronological order. And I think as my own understanding of the topic developed, I were jumps across time and jumps kind of between chapters. Um, I guess at the very beginning, we start off four and a half billion years ago with the creation of the earth and then the emergence of the first life bacteria three and a half billion years ago. And we quickly move into the human side of it. And I guess that's the point of the book, really, that, you know, there's all this science that shows how big an impact bacteria and viruses Have on our bodies as individuals. And myself, having a background in history and a background in sociology, I was really curious about the impact of microbes, of viruses, of bacteria on aggregations of bodies. So, on the body, the body politic, the body economic, the body social. So, yeah, that was
1: the main driving force of the book. When you come to the end, it feels like you have gone on a journey and like you've gone through time and that you've, you know, you have linked it all so well. I feel like I've got a much better understanding of the link between disease and politics, social progression. I found that really interesting. I suppose when plagues can be used as a weapon and when they're a hindrance, I found that incredibly interesting that if you develop immunity to something because of where you're born, that can make you powerful at certain points in history, or it can make you Um, very vulnerable at other points.
0: No, 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 definitely. And I think, you know, I started writing this book during the COVID pandemic. I guess I was troubled by the fact that, you know, it had already become a cliche to say that this is unprecedented and this is so unusual. And then I knew from my understanding of history that as a species, we're living surrounded by microbes and we have all these microbes teeming inside us and they're mutating all the time, sometimes to help us and sometimes to harm us. And if we go back through history, you know, everything from the extinction of the Neanderthals, Forty thousand years ago to the Black Death in the Middle Ages, you know it's a very, very common feature of history that diseases kill billions of people, bring civilizations crashing down. but this is creative destruction in a way. It creates space for new ideas and for new societies to emerge, and it's one of the driving forces of human progress if there is such a thing.
1: I remember thinking with COVID. I was thinking about my mum, who was born in 1943, and I was thinking, actually, she's quite lucky not to have lived through a pandemic. So I just remember thinking there's one generation, actually, if she died, which she's alive, but plenty of people who were born in the early 40s who aren't alive. And you go, they never lived through a pandemic. Actually, that's the anomaly.
0: Yeah. Well, I think our parents' generation, as you say, they're an anomaly in part because of the invention of antibiotics. And this brought a temporary reprieve, I guess, in the age-old battle between microbes and humans. If you're writing a book like this, in the nineteen fifties or or sixties or seventies, you would probably be thinking about it as an epic as the the kind of triumph of humans over infectious diseases. And in some respects this was well informed, you know, humans managed to eliminate smallpox in nineteen eighty, a disease that had killed three hundred million people in in the twentieth century alone. So this kind of optimism was, was in some respects justified. But the last 50 years has really been a golden age for infectious diseases. With the boom in population and the increase in travel between far-flung places, this has really been a boon to, to infectious diseases. And it's not just COVID, it's also Ebola and HIV AIDS and SARS and numerous other diseases that have emerged in the last 50 years or so and really kind of threaten our health.
1: Why do some bacteria want to destroy?
0: And someone to help? That's a really good question. And I guess it's not the fact that they want something. They want to reproduce and be successful and we're just collateral damage. You know, we were talking earlier about the bacteria in our stomachs and there's a really nice symbiotic relationship there, right? Our stomachs give these bacteria a warm, relatively safe, cozy place to live with lots of nutrients. And in return, these bacteria perform all sorts of important roles like breaking down certain foods and producing things that our bodies need. So that's perfect for those bacteria to to reproduce.
1: Yeah. It's not that they're with COVID, I find myself thinking, why is it so evil? Why does it want to kill people? But of course you're personifying something that all it wants is to reproduce.
0: There's even an argument that from the planet's perspective, our species seems like a rampant bacteria or a virus that, you know, over the last kind of few thousand years has kind of grown in population and has caused all this devastation. So probably from the perspective of the earth, there's not that much difference between humans as a species and, and bacteria or viruses, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's just that we think of ourselves as really brilliant.
0: And yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well, um, we asked you to bring a few things to talk mm-hmm. about. Um, so the first thing I'd love to talk about is you is something to eat. Hmm. I have brought
0: a block of mature cheddar cheese. I grew up in, in rural Somerset and my parents still live there. And it's, it's really quite a beautiful Place. Um, their house is on a wooded hillside, overlooking the Somerset Levels, out towards the Quantocks and Exmoor. I suppose um, Quantocks is making me think of that episode of Peep Show.
1: Right? Oh yes, Quantocking. Quantocking. Yeah. Quant-talking. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, anyway, you know, it's really, it's really, really beautiful. And I think one thing I really like about about my parents' home is that you know it changes with the seasons. So in the winter, the levels flood, and it's basically teeming with migratory bird life. But in the summer, the floods recede and the farmers put their cows out onto the fields and um, their dairy cows. And so they eat the grass and they transform that into milk. And the milk from the specific cows in our village is then taken and processed and made into to barber's cheese. So yeah, cheese certainly reminds me of my childhood and my adolescence. And I guess it gets to the question of where am I from? It is a bit strange for me going back to my parents' home now. You know, when I was growing up, I went to a school of maybe a thousand students, and I think everyone was white. Maybe there was a, a couple of kids whose parents ran the the Chinese restaurant that weren't white. But it's just so different to the world that I live in today. The students that I teach in East London, or even my own family—I'm married to a British Pakistani, and you know, I've got a child who's mixed heritage. So I do feel somewhat alienated from rural Somerset these days. Um, but it's interesting as well. I do talk about Somerset and the southwest a bit in the book, and. I think the themes I talk about do somehow fit in with this idea of belonging and, and home, even though they're, they're about the Neolithic period. So if I take my bike back to my parents, and I'll talk about my bike in a minute, one of the nicest bike rides is to Cheddar Gorge. It's beautiful there, but also it's a very old site of, of human settlement. And over 100 years ago, archaeologists dug up basically the oldest, almost complete skeleton ever found in the UK. Is or in the Cheddar British Isles. Cheddar Man, of course, yeah. um, which is now in the natural... History museum, you know, there was a delicious irony a few years ago when scientists managed to remove DNA from this nine thousand year old skeleton, and they found that the original inhabitants of the British Isles, you know, they weren't kind of English roses. Cheddar Man appears to have had really quite dark brown skin, dark brown hair, and very fair eyes. Um, There's also some other really interesting discoveries using ancient DNA that, that that kind of feature in the book and. Another one relates to the builders of, of Stonehenge. Um, of course, if I drive back to my parents from London, you go on the A three hundred three, and you go really weirdly close to. I know. To, it's. I um,
1: always find it really odd that you can just basically drive past it. It's. Yeah. 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 No. It's. Uh, it's very
0: very strange. And the the people that built Stonehenge they weren't the original inhabitants of the British Isles. They weren't Cheddar Man's descendants. Actually, they were. Uh, the first farmers who kind of gradually migrated, I guess, from what's now Turkey through Europe, bringing farming with them. And it seems like, you know, because farming involved living close together, close to animals, new diseases emerged. This killed the the population that had lived in Europe before, the hunter-gatherers like Cheddar Man, and this new wave of people moved in and took over. So that's another thing that I find quite amusing with with prehistory, the fact that this great British icon, Stonehenge, was actually built by... Was essentially Turkish immigrant workers
1: I mean I didn 't know that i'd known that you know no one quite knows why it was built and there's lots of different theories i'd never actually given that much thought to who built it yeah um, and the
0: sad thing is these people went to all this trouble of building Stonehenge it took millions of hours to drag the stones from some of them even from from West Wales to do the the groundwork to put them up and within a few hundred years they had disappeared and again this seems to be the result of a really big pandemic so it seems from other evidence in Europe that there was a massive plague pandemic around 5,000 years ago. And this happened at about the same time as a really kind of dramatic collapse in the population in, in Europe, including the British Isles. And then you have a new wave of migration coming in. And this time it's people that are fair skin, taller, um, have lactose tolerance. And they're basically kind of herders from the steppe, from the far east of Europe. And they move in and they bring their languages with them they also contributed a great deal to the genes of certainly people in Northern Europe today. And so it's really crazy to think that this plague pandemic that happened 5,000 years ago, you know, we're still able to see and to hear the consequences of that today when we're sitting in London. Um, It's really, really mind-blowing to me.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, Wordsworth, as you write in the book, described Stonehenge as so proud to hint yet keep thy secrets. You know, people pontificate a lot, don't they, about why Stonehenge was built and sort of lots of discussion about where the stones are placed and th- and where I'm from in Derbyshire, there's a stone circle called the Nine Ladies and there's a, there are similar discussions about that. Um, it's far less famous, but we used to go there at summer solstice and things like that. Do you see any value in that pontification? You know, sometimes those conversations can be quite interesting and stimulating where people say, oh no, it's, it's because of this. Oh no, it's because of religion. It's because of... Is your instinct always to kind of access the truth and to to get behind it? Or do you sometimes just say, we don't know, and there's a certain joy in that?
0: I mean, it is fun to ponder, but it's also really interesting to try to piece together the evidence. And it's funny because when I was at school in Somerset, I went to the local comprehensive. I wasn't there for the first year of school. And then the person that was given the role of looking after me in my first few days was a guy called Richard Madwick, who... Strange enough is now also an academic. He's an archaeologist at um Cardiff University, and he works on this kind of thing and trying to work out what the hell's the point of Stonehenge and he's done some really interesting research where he's basically taken the bones of I guess lamb chops and um pig legs that were thrown away at Durrington Walls, which is the feast site very close to Stonehenge. And he's found that you know these animals were reared often in West Wales, sometimes in Scotland. And then they must have been driven down to Stonehenge for these big feasts where people came together. So this gives us some kind of clue that it was a social meeting place. It was possibly a place of religious importance. You obviously have the relationship to the the summer solstice. So, yeah, it's also interesting to piece together all these little clues that um, archaeologists
1: managed to give us. In the book, I think one thing you do really well is explain your logic. So it feels so well paced. You don't rush things and you talk about why you've concluded certain things. And for example, the fact that all Indo-European languages share similar vocabulary for words related to wagons like axle pole and wheel. And you said that that tells us about when they migrated into Europe because it had to be after wheeled vehicles started appearing in the archaeological record. I wondered if the first draft, you kind of thought, right, well, I'll explain that. I'll go into that later, but I want to get on with writing this later, but now, or as you wrote it, did you find yourself going quite deep into each moment, I suppose? I think it varied over time. So
0: certainly at the beginning, I kind of really delved into these these topics in great detail and kind of went off on these long detours and came up with chapters that were three times longer than the editors wanted and i'd send them off and get them sent back with you know very helpful remarks but just you know think of the reader keep this focused don't make it too long and so i guess you know after a while i learned to rein it in a bit but uh it was hard you know it was a journey for me writing this and it was a journey of discovery and it's hard to kind of stop yourself when you're mid-flow so to speak um so yeah,
1: it changed over time, I guess. Yeah. And it also it's because you're so passionate about it. Your instinct probably is to go, you know, it's exciting, isn't it? I think that's why the relationship with the editor is so key, isn't it? Mm. Because if you trust them, then you go, right, okay, yes. Annoyingly, much as I'd like to do 2,000 words on this, I might have to take uh, half of it out.
0: Exactly. It helps to write things, to send them off, to leave them for a few weeks and then to come back and hope I
1: saw sense on most occasions. And oh, Well, it's brilliant so you did because i can understand it i remembered some bits of it from gcse history like history of medicine and the roman sponges on sticks oh, that gosh. people wipe their bottoms with which as you can imagine in gcse history yeah, we were yeah. All like, Ugh. but yeah it was it was it uh shared them in communal toilets as well it's incredible yeah. incredible <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really loved that bit i was like yes <laughs> um okay well let's move on to the next thing that you have brought in and this is something to listen to yeah so this
0: is um song by Miriam Makeba, Pata Pata. So I have a two and a half year old daughter, um, Zaha, and usually it's my responsibility to look after her in the morning. So um, we'll go downstairs and we'll make porridge. And while we're waiting for the porridge to cool down, she'll usually ask me for moogish, by which she means music. And then I'll say, what song do you want playing? And more or less every time she'll say Pata Pata, this kind of infectiously joyous Afro pop. (laughs) Anthem, I guess, by Miriam Makeba. And it's a nice way to start the morning, to be kind of prancing around the kitchen like an idiot with a two and a half year old dancing to this. But I guess there's also a deeper significance as well for me. I was really lucky when I was about 24, 25. So in 2005, I had the opportunity to go and study in South Africa, in Durban, um, at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. And I lived in what the South Africans called RES, um, which are like the student dorms. And it's it's kind of interesting because this was over a decade after the the fall of apartheid, but still you felt like society was really, really segregated. And um, the university I went to was formerly, I guess, kind of an institution for Indians or people of South Asian origin. And then there was a big influx after apartheid fell of black South Africans. And the the reses, the student dorms were almost exclusively lived in by black South African students. And the South Asian students would live at home and, and travel in. So it was this bizarre segregation. And then there was a few, a few international students, including me who lived in the dorms with the black South Africans. And it was a real eye opener for, for me having, you know, lived in Somerset most of my life and then gone to study at, at Nottingham to, to get to know people from a totally different background and they would take us home to the townships on weekends sometimes and just to realize the the really abject poverty in which their families lived um and it was also a real eye opener with regards to infectious diseases as well and their impact on society because this was right in the midst of the hiv aids epidemic and so at the time in south africa and it's still pretty much the same but one in 5 people were HIV positive so it was kind of a really widespread disease but what was really horrible was that a few years earlier if you lived in the UK or the US you would have been given access to antiretroviral drugs which were you know in a way miraculous they reduced the viral load in your body to such an extent that you couldn't pass on the the virus and or you didn't develop full-blown AIDS but these drugs were really really expensive the pharmaceutical companies were charging ten thousand dollars a year which is And well, it's an astronomical amount of money for me, but it's unfathomable for someone whose family live in a township in South Africa. And um, eventually, after years of campaigning and years of pressure from activists, the pharmaceutical companies gave in, and they allowed other factories to produce generic drugs at a tiny fraction of the cost. So it would be three hundred and fifty dollars a year compared to ten thousand dollars a year. But this was a massive struggle, and in the years. Between ARVs being developed and the drug companies allowing generics to be produced, over 10 million people died from HIV AIDS, and even more than that contracted the, the virus. So yeah, just kind of living, experiencing, seeing this tragedy, I guess it it had a big, big influence on me, and it still does. And I think the sad thing is we haven't really learned the lessons. There's still millions of people who die today from preventable and treatable diseases and they tend to be poor people in in poor countries. And you know, it just underlines the fact that people in high income countries seem to think that their lives matter more than people in, in low income countries. And that's just
1: terrible when you think about it. It's making me think of the last bit of the book where you talk about COVID mm-hmm. and the fact that the UK, amongst other countries, hogged Loads of vaccines and have got have stockpiled loads that we perhaps won't even ever use um,
0: yeah, so creating artificial scarcity first of all by stockpiling but also by not allowing the production of generic vaccines, so yes. protecting the intellectual property of the vaccine makers and you know there's an argument that this protects future innovation, but certainly when we're in the midst of a pandemic that was killing millions of, of people it it does seem like a really quite twisted logic to be thinking about money rather than human lives.
1: Yeah, well it's the ultimate test, isn't it? You know, anyone can it's like actions speak louder than words. There can be lots of conversations between politicians about how much we care for everyone and everyone's equal and then it's like, well then now it's come to the crunch. So what are you going to do? Oh, okay. When vaccines were first invented, was there less of a problem with this um because I think from the book I understand a bit more about how it works. The person invents the vaccine, the pharmaceutical company takes it and produces it in mass. But what you're saying is the pharmaceutical companies could release the recipe, as it were, I'm talking in layperson's terms, and someone could make it really cheaply, but they won't do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So pharmaceutical companies develop drugs, or actually often it's universities that develop drugs, but pharmaceutical companies acquire the intellectual property, and then they market these drugs, uh, often kind of enormous markups and because they're private companies that are concerned about profits and returns to shareholders, they protect their intellectual property and they don't allow other companies to produce generic versions, even though they could do so at a fraction of the cost. Um, and so yeah, this creates artificial scarcity. It means that, you know, lots of people who might
1: otherwise have access to these drugs and not get sick suffer and get ill and and die. So when the first vaccine came about, was there the equivalent of a pharmaceutical company or was it fairer in that anyone could receive it?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So the first inoculations, and again, this is kind of the great British narrative. The story that we're told at at school and that we read is that Edward Jenner, towards the end of the 1700s, noticed that milkmaids weren't getting sick from, from smallpox and he yes. deduced from that that they were contracting cowpox. And this gave basically crossover immunity. So cowpox didn't make make the the, the very sick, but it gave them immunity to, to smallpox. Yeah, and so he kind of had this idea that if you took pus from a cowpox pustule, made a cut, and put it into the bloodstream, that would allow the body to develop antibodies and and develop protection against smallpox. So yeah, there wouldn't have been any protection of that, and it it, it spread pretty quickly as a method as well. But then money
1: always wants to be made, doesn't it, I guess? Indeed. Well, let's move on to the next item, uh, which you may have here. I don't know, it would it meant you've cycled all the way from South End, which would be quite a long way. No, it was a bit um, too cold to, yeah.
0: <laughs> to cycle today and I was worried I would fall off or yes, something like, right. like that. So I yeah. came by Tube, I'm afraid uh, to say.
1: No, that's all right. So you haven't brought the Tube, um, you brought
0: um, <laughs> something to travel on. Yeah, I brought with me my bike, which I call the Red Rocket. And I don't covet many material items but this is in some respects my my pride and joy. In my 20s I would often walk down Grayson Road and I'd walk past the Condor bike shop and I'd really kind of look through the window and and want one. But the problem with being a academic and certainly being a graduate student as I was through most of my mid to late late 20s is, you know, you don't have very much money so it's a time in your life where a lot of your friends who haven't taken this path are buying houses driving fast cars and there was poor old me who couldn't even afford a, a reasonably nice bike so one of the first things i did when i got my job at queen mary university was to go to the condo shop and buy this this red bike and at the time i was living in west london and i would ride around london from east to west and all over and uh yeah it was a really magical magical time yeah albert einstein claims that he came up with a the theory of relativity while riding a bicycle, but he obviously wasn't riding in London because I think the thing that really appeals to me is the fact that you you have to concentrate so much, otherwise you'll get hit by a bus or you'll, you'll run someone over. And it's this kind of forced mindfulness that really gives me a, a peace of mind. And it's such a nice antidote to the stayed life of an academic to be kind of, well, it feels like you're flying around London and the dopamine hit and the adrenaline hit, it really changed the chemical balance of my mind. And really thinking back to those days very, very happy times. It's also hard to disentangle cycling from my discovery of London as a city. And I think, you know, as someone who has a background in sociology and someone who now teaches public health, I'm fascinated and you know often really horrified by the inequalities that you see in this kind of beautiful, ugly city that we're in now. And, you know, just for example, if I had my bike with me, and if I jumped on my bike, you know, I could cycle 10, 15 minutes west of here and we get to kind of North Kensington. This is where Grenfell Tower is, where you had this horrific fire that killed over 70 people in 2017. And, you know, really quite a poor area with lots of immigrants, lots of people from ethnic minority backgrounds. Um, but then again, if I jumped on my bike and cycled for another 10, 15 minutes south of there, you get to kind of South Kensington yeah. and at Harrods and the V&A Museum and Kensington Palace, and you're among some of the richest people in the world. And, you know, you can really see that in health outcomes as well. Um, so Michael Marmot is a very well-renowned British-Australian epidemiologist and public health scholar. He he says that the the life expectancy difference between someone who's born in North and South Kensington is something like 22 years, which is really, really obscene to think just by the, the kind of luck of the draw you're, you're born in a rich area or poor area that has such a big impact on your life and on your death, I I guess. And the really sad thing as well is these life expectancies, the kind of gaps aren't getting smaller. They're getting wider and wider. And this is really a, a sad indictment of our society and politics that we're not dealing with these really
1: horrific inequalities. That's kind of what I'm left with from reading the book, that you know, we think we've come so far and the UK thinks of itself as a superpower for many centuries due to some really abhorrent things, actually. You know, we were, as a country, very powerful, but COVID has laid bare the inequalities. That's what I take from the last chapter. It's such a strong ending. It feels almost a bit like a call to arms. Was that your intention with, with the ending of it? It made me want to go, right, you know, what, what can i do this is terrible yeah no no definitely and i think part of the point of writing the book was
0: because i hope that people would enjoy it and i guess another part that i've talked about was that i enjoyed writing it myself but there was also this realization that you know we will at some point in the future either sooner or later face another devastating pandemic and we've dealt with the past one in a pretty poor way you know if you think of how many people died and the devastation that the covid pandemic wrought and so I thought it was really important to go through history and to look at some of the the ways in which human societies have tried to cope with infectious diseases and try to learn lessons from both best practice and from the disasters. And, you know, you get some some kind of really funny examples of ways in which people have tried to deal with infectious diseases. So, cholera in the in the 19th century, one of the purported cures was to put mutton stew up your backside. Yeah. Um, we can't really learn anything from from that, but I think the occasions when human societies have been really successful at countering infectious diseases is when they've come together and they haven't just dealt with the disease, but they've also dealt with the underlying kind of social and economic and political problems that have allowed a disease to flourish. Because COVID didn't just spread because it was a super infectious virus. If we look at who was affected in this country, it was disproportionately poor people who take public transport, who work in public facing positions, who live in multi-generational households in and crowded conditions. And Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, discusses this. Um, He calls it a syndemic. It was, in a way, a synergistic epidemic. It wasn't just this one epidemic. It was COVID kind of breeding on the pre-existing inequality and really kind of thriving on that. So, you know, it's not just about dealing with the next pandemic. It's not just about developing new medicines. It's also about dealing with these social problems that made the pandemic so much worse than it needed to be. And also, I suppose, not
1: waiting till it happens, then going, oh, we better do something. Yeah, 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 exactly. When you're cycling, do you always plan your route or do you ever just get on the bike and go? Um, quite often, just get on
0: the bike and go. And I have a pretty good inner kind of satellite, I guess. So I, even if I don't get there the quickest way, I usually get where I want to go in a reasonably quick way.
1: I find it really interesting that you like the fact that actually it's more risky to cycle in a city. Because most people, if they say they like cycling, my partner's a big cyclist mm. as well. I think he'd probably... Prefer to be on an open country road in the same way as when I ski. I prefer to be on like a nice green run, especially now I'm in my forties and I don't want to do anything silly anymore. Whereas obviously there are people who prefer those those more difficult runs. But yeah, I like the fact that you you like this adrenaline and and you know thinking you know I've got to get in line. There's loads of cyclists at this red light and yeah. Well, don't get me wrong.
0: I I also love to be out in the countryside and my parents and cycling to Cheddar Gorge or cycling over to the Quantocks, but yeah, there's a certain addictive thrill to cycling in London that, you know, is really brilliant. Even if, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want my daughter to be doing it in, in 20 years time, because it's also incredibly scary and you do take your life in your own hands, unfortunately.
1: No, I know what you mean. I feel exactly like that about skiing. I can do it, but kids can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a quote from The author Cal Flynn about your book that I really loved. It says, we are but the pawns and playthings of viruses and bacteria. And I think playthings is right on the money, um, having read the book. It's almost like we're at the whim of the bacteria. And we've sort of discussed this in that, you know, we're collateral damage or... In terms of good bacteria, actually, it's just chance, but that benefits us. So do you always manage to maintain this scientific distance, I suppose, when you're thinking about this? Or if you're thinking about a plague, for example, that's killed so many, I include COVID with this, really. Or do you sometimes think, oh, my God, that, you know, we've got no control. This is absolute chaos. Do you just kind of vacillate between the two? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think there's an important
0: lesson it's not a lesson from the book i guess it just kind of fits in with this growing realization that we're not living in the the book of genesis you know god didn't create humans in his own image and give us dominion over the the land the sea the animals you know we're just one species living on the planet in kind of a pretty perilous balance with all sorts of other species of animals microbes plants and you know we have to really appreciate the precarious nature of our existence and the planet's future, and you know, I think this book is is part of that, and part of kind of rethinking humans' role in the world, and getting away from this super anthropocentric kind of view of the world where we're the most important thing, and or well, the natural world is just a stage, basically, on which we as protagonists play out our our role. I tend to think of it more as. Cal analogy is really, really good, but almost as if infectious diseases are really powerful tidal forces. And, you know, sometimes we as humans can surf the wave and make the best of things, but often will fall off. And, you know, we have to be aware of that. And it's, you know, it's an important realization to understand our position in the world. And it's crucial to our future as a species to realize that we have to have some humility and we have to
1: take care of this fantastic planet that we live on. Maybe it ties in with the cycling, actually, that everyone's on the road. No one vehicle is more important than the other. Yeah, although,
0: you know, a bus is bigger than me and can hurt yeah, me. I can't have a bus.
1: <laughs> but you've got as much of a right to be on the road. In theory, in yeah. theory at least, yeah. <laughs> so um, let's move on to the fourth item you've brought in, and this is something to read. Yeah, so it's the New York Review of Books. And
0: I suppose if I could curate my perfect weekend morning, it would be first going downstairs and making porridge, dancing around the kitchen, Then probably going for a bike ride through the countryside or maybe through through the city, and then come home and make a second breakfast and go and find somewhere comfortable and quiet to sit and read the New York Review of books. And I guess I really love the kind of heady mixture of art, literature, science, economics, history, classics all together in one publication and For someone who who grew up in rural Somerset, it's almost a way of kind of teleporting myself into this other world that's, you know, really, really foreign, but also very alluring, kind of the world of the East Coast progressive intelligentsia. And I've learned so much from reading the New York Review books over over the years. And again, it's a really nice antidote to academic life because if I was working in a university a couple of hundred years ago, you know, there'd be this kind of real emphasis on trying to have a broad understanding of the world and to to basically understand the totality of at least Western scientific knowledge. But working in a university today is very, very different to that. Um, there's a lot of pressure to specialize in your discipline or even your your sub discipline and to not kind of really kind of take a step back and think about the broader context of your of your work. And I suppose in the book, what I've tried to do is to basically take on board the ethos of something like the New York Review of Books and I certainly wouldn't claim to be an enlightenment polymath I'm, I'm probably more of a, a dilettante but um you know at least I I really try to bring in insights from all sorts of different disciplines whether that's um microbiology or medicine or economics or classics and kind of put it all together in a way that's easily understandable to the general reader and hopefully interesting as as well and enjoyable
1: There are also great tidbits in there, and um, you use comedy to illustrate certain points, which I really liked. Um, Monty Python appears a few times because obviously they've done great sketches set in the past.
0: Yeah, 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 Um, yeah. no, No, definitely. And I think, I mean, in a way, this book came out of my teaching, and you know, teaching students in the 21st century when they're sat in front of you with their laptops, and I don't get to see what they're looking at, but I. I assume it's all the stuff that I look at when I'm supposed to be working. So WhatsApp, news, Twitter, all these kind of things. So yeah, you really have to kind of think about how can I hook them in? How can I kind of get them interested in the topic? And so... I guess I I tried to use that approach in my writing as well and make it not just about, of course, kind of infectious diseases and history is a big part of it, but also, you know, how does that relate to Monty Python or I think...
1: Game of Thrones is in it. Game of Thrones, Stuart
0: Lee at some point, I think, Um, but all these things that I find kind of amusing or... Or interesting so so yeah it's uh it was really good fun trying to think about writing in a in a different way um you know in a less scientific way and in a way that hopefully is you know entertaining and interesting yeah i should also say as well with the new york review of books i was going to to mention my i was going to say my wife but actually we're supposed to get married in april 2020 and oh, the first yes. or the second weekend of the sixth or seventh of april but we had to call off our wedding because of covid so yeah that never really happened um actually the richmond registry office still has my my deposit so i should probably have a think about (laughs) that (laughs) that's that's another kind of um example i guess of in small ways how infectious diseases have all influenced our lives but when i first met my partner our first date i guess um farrah we'd agreed to meet at, at richmond station and farrah is like probably the nearest thing to a polymath, I know. And it's kind of by default because her parents strongly encouraged her to study medicine. So she's she's a GP. And for a long time, actually, she was a GP just over the canal from here in Paddington Green. But her real interest is in the arts, literature. Uh, she studied anthropology. So she really has a broad knowledge of, of things. So we arranged to meet, and I got there early so she wouldn't be waiting for me. And um, it's a bit, it makes me cringe a bit thinking about it now, but I guess it's some kind of intellectual virtual signalling that I brought along a copy of the New York Review of books and was reading it as I was sat on the steps waiting for her. But if I remember rightly, she she turned up like an hour and a half late, I think. So actually, I was pretty happy to have something to read. And she was so flustered when she got there; I don't think she realised that I was even reading anything. But it kind of worked out fine in the end, and. I'm still waiting for her a lot of the time, but um, it's uh, it's all good.
1: I love that it. Also, the fact that you really love the New York review of books proves that it's not like you just got it in order to look cool on the first date. You, you really do. <laughs> I guess the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. But no, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Well, exactly. That's the benefit of liking something really cool, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Um, we've nearly run out of time are you going to write another book do you think
0: uh, yes but I need to rest first and actually Farah's writing a book at this this point so um, it's her turn and I need to do yeah. a bit more childcare and a bit more pay a bit more attention to my family and my friends and things like that but um,
1: certainly I'd like to write another book Yeah, I think also it's like you have to let it germinate for a while don't you you can't necessarily move on immediately yeah let it germinate let my
0: mind recover because you know I've slept that much the last couple of years having a baby then a toddler and trying to write this book and trying to hold down a a job as well so yeah all in good time all in good
1: time well it's a huge achievement and best of luck with it I know it's your first book so everyone's going to love this book and you know as someone who as I said did GCSE history and science and then just did arts and languages at A level so I really my knowledge of history is pretty Basic. My knowledge of disease is pretty basic. I found it a really warm, just bursting with information. Nothing was assumed. I didn't feel like it was something I was shut out of that I was reading. It didn't feel intimidating as a thing to pick up. It felt like opening a book written by a friend that you know explained everything properly, and it was really exciting to discover all this new stuff. So I think it's
0: yeah. Thanks. That's really kind to to say. And yeah, it's a strange strange feeling having been kind of in a world on my own for the last few years writing this and then coming back out into the world and the book coming out into the world it's exciting but also a little bit scary so thanks for your kind words it's uh it's nice to hear
1: oh you're very welcome so it's out on the 13th of april thank you very much for listening wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. If you can, please leave us a nice review if you're enjoying listening. Um, and finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or catch up with any episodes you've missed, and there are a lot, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. It's all there. I'm Izzy Sotty. See you next time.